a nation, you're pretty sure that some of your own country people or people from other nations are guilty or plotting acts of terrorism against your country. But you don't have enough evidence to bring charges in a court of law. What would you do? Nearly all governments outlaw what is called administrative detention of suspected criminals. But it is just as true that nearly all countries throughout the world declare exceptional circumstances when the rules don't apply. Among the rules that don't apply is when national security is at risk. Each country has its own rules for how long a terrorist suspect can be legally detained without charge. Here are some examples. In Greece, it's 24 hours. In Norway, it's 48 hours with potential exceptions. In Spain, it can be between 3 and 13 days. In the United Kingdom, I believe it's currently 28 days. In India, it's 180 days. And in the United States, it's indefinitely, but only if declared an enemy combatant. Now, probably the most famous detention center is the facility that the U.S. has at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. It currently detains people held on suspicion of plotting, supporting, or engaging in acts of terrorism. Uh, some of its detainees have been taken there without internationally recognized legal due process from their own countries and are held with little or no prospect of their case ever coming to trial. The outgoing Bush administration has been widely supportive of such extreme measures, yet the incoming Obama administration appears to be committed to re-examining the files of some 250 detainees currently held there as part of an intensive effort to close uh, the facility at Guantanamo Bay. Now, irrespective of your views of American national or foreign policy or the rights or wrongs of any country having such powers of detention, imagine for a moment that you're a prisoner held in a facility like Guantanamo Bay. Knowing something of the current administration's views, you've resigned yourself to accepting whether you're guilty or not, that you have virtually no hope of ever being released or your case ever coming to trial. Then one day, one of your captors inadvertently leaves a copy of the Washington Post lying around. And fortunately, being able to read English, you notice this headline, Guantanamo Closure Called Obama Priority. Wouldn't you just think that would get your hopes up? Just a little? Well, this is very similar to the experience that Paul has in a conclave of the Roman Empire ruled over by the administration of the Emperor Caesar Nero in Rome. Governor Felix, uh, see the previous chapter in this morning's service, uh, sermon, has been holding Paul a prisoner for two years in Caesarea on the trumped-up charges brought initially by a militant band of Jewish zealots who came from Asia to Jerusalem and created a riot. And there appears to be little hope of Paul being brought to trial or released. And then the governor, Felix, is recalled to Rome to face a personal investigation for his own misdemeanors, according to the Roman historian Josephus. And a more tolerant man in the person of Festus is appointed to govern the Palestinian outpost on behalf of the Roman Empire. So let's read the account of that story in Acts 25. 
Acts 25, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1122, 1122. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself are going there soon. Let some of your leaders come along with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against them, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. Amen. This is God's word. The title of this sermon in the series, The Spreading Flame, is Witnessing to Kings and Governors. This is the first part. Colin uh, will pick up the next part next week and and continue uh, with Paul before King Agrippa. As I read through this and studied this week, I I questioned that I thought Paul may have in his mind might have been something like this. There's a new ruler, but will it be the same old story? Very soon after arriving in the province and taking up his new post, Festus gets right down 
to business of governing and administrating on behalf of Rome. He makes it a priority to meet and engage with his new subjects, so he gets himself up to Jerusalem, and there he meets the Jewish chief priests and the leaders. Now, they're the movers and shakers of their day, and he wants to get alongside them. Uh, and, and in as much as it's possible for him to establish an air of mutual cooperation. Now, as a token of this back-scratching exercise, the Jewish leaders suggest that they might, he might consider bringing Paul up to Jerusalem to stand trial on the charges that they had brought to the attention of Festus' disgraced predecessor. And so they revive the false charges against Paul in verse 2. Uh, you read there, you, you might want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to flick a little between the chapters just to get the gist of what's going on here. Uh, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Now Luke doesn't uh, specifically detail the exact nature of these charges, but from previous things that have been said in Acts, uh, we can deduce some facts. Uh, turn back to Acts 21, verse 28. There you see where this whole thing kicked off in the temple courts. Some Jews from Asia shouted, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Let your eyes wander down to verse 34. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. But if you turn on to Acts 23 and verse 6, you'll see there that Paul understands the problem slightly differently. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And then back to Acts 25, verse 8, we can understand from what Paul says in his defense that the charges had a threefold aspect to them. Then Paul made his defense and he says, I have not done anything wrong against the law of the Jews. Had he been guilty of that, it would have been heresy. He has not done anything wrong against the temple, which would have been sacrilege. And neither has he done anything against Caesar, which would have been treason. So Paul simply concludes that he's not guilty of heresy, sacrilege, or treason. But there's other aspects that are going to be brought into focus. Now, the people who are bringing the charges against him are not at all interested in justice or conducting a fair trial. They simply want rid of Paul once and for all. So in verse 3, they renew their old plots and plans. That was the title of Peter's sermon a couple of weeks ago, to kill Paul. Kill Paul, kill Paul, kill Paul. They're like a dog with a bone, or if some of you are old enough to remember, a broken gramophone record stuck in its groove, just going over it. We've heard it over and over and over again. In Acts 21, in Acts 22, in Acts 23, and now again in Acts 25. As I read this, I just thought, can't they give it a rest? For years, two years, relentlessly, They've just been banging on. Kill Paul, kill Paul, kill Paul. Well, apparently they can't give it up. This really is their groove. And they're well and truly stuck in it. Again, back to Acts 23, verses 12 through 15. Because this is what they resurrect here in this conspiracy. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. 
More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting some more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So the old plan's back in focus. For two years, actually indeed, ever since Paul arrived back in Jerusalem from his missionary journeys, they have held on to their bitter hatred and their violent intentions. And do you know what I think is the saddest part of this? Is that these are the Jewish leaders. These are the guys who have been charged with leading the people of God. They ought to have known better, since they are actually the people who claim to know God. But of course, you and I realize that they also claimed to know God when they rejected Jesus and nailed him to the cross. And so it's against this background that Paul petitions Caesar in verses 4 through 12. In Mark 13 and verse 9, Jesus had told his disciples, You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. That's from that verse that myself and Colin have taken the title of the sermon and the one next Sunday morning. That on account of me, Jesus says, you will give testimony to rulers. And speaking very specifically of Paul, God had revealed to Ananias in Damascus that this man, that's Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And in that, I observe two things. First of all, the sovereign plan of God. You see, while we look at Paul's situation and think, he's in prison, he's a Christian, but he's in prison. And he's been there for two years, and there is no substantive charge that will ever stand up in a court of law to make sure that he stays there. He's guilty of no crime. And yet this is God's sovereign plan. None of this stuff is happening by accident. Any more than the circumstances of your life or my life are the product of random chance. Be it your existence or your experience. Behind the day-to-day happenings of every believer often moves the hidden hand of God. Sometimes it's a bit more obvious than being hidden and we, we understand it. But many, many times, I think the majority of the times, that as things happen to us and as stuff come against us in the world, we don't see, but the hidden hand of God is still there in control. Did you notice, probably completely unaware of the existence of the Jewish plot, Festus foils their attempt to kill Paul by suggesting that the trial be held in Caesarea. What a coincidence. I don't think so. Don't you just love the way that God often uses so-called pagans or non-believers to bring about his will and purposes, especially when those who claim to be his followers fail? Now, I love it. Not because I want to globe over the failure of people 
who say they're followers of God to recognize him or to conform to his will. But rather I love it because it just reveals just how much God is concerned, first of all, for his own glory. And then it also reveals what lens that he will go to to ensure that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven in respect of individual believers like you and me and like Paul. We see it again and again throughout Scripture. So whether it's an Old Testament pagan king who God calls his servant, Cyrus, or a talking donkey, or a walloping great fish swallowing but not digesting the prophet, God most certainly directs the affairs of his children and ensures the fulfillment of the plans he has for them. And I want to encourage you to really trust that if you don't already. To really believe that. That God is in control. And so we see the sovereign hand of God but we also hear the solemn plea of the apostle. First of all, he corrects the facts since he's innocent of the charges. Now this is just a simple, appropriate response Whenever someone brings false allegations against the believer, although if you compare what Paul goes through here and with what Jesus went through in his trial, as quoted by the prophet Isaiah, that even as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But remember that he's talking to the people who claim to know God. And there are times when you and I are best to stay silent because... To actually say anything, again in the words of Jesus, is that whole dogs and swine scenario where it's inappropriate to give the people who cannot comprehend our words any explanation or any testimony. So we discern and we learn when to speak and not to speak. And before those who claim to be gods, who bring false allegation against us, I don't think there is any point in having dialogue with them. And we see that in Jesus' case. You remember before the Jews, he kept quiet. But before the Roman governor Pilate, he speaks and gives an explanation. And so here Paul simply corrects what is false. This is a real sense, you see, in which you and I, as Paul did, we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to defend our reputations or our well-being. God will take care of that. Isn't it God in Jesus who says that your heavenly Father knows your needs? Therefore, why worry about these things, but seek first the kingdom of God? And all the things that you need for your well-being, the protection of your reputation, all that will be added to you, as well as daily food and clothes and housing. God will take care of that. But we are at liberty to correct falsehoods if we get the chance. You see, failing to present the truth or state the real facts of the gospel message is actually a much more serious failure than failing to protect one's own safety or life. Let me explain what I mean by that, just in case that raises huge questions for you. Let me ask you two questions. Once the believer, i.e. you and I and Paul, entrusts him or herself to God, will God ever fail them? Uh, you can respond. He won't, will he? Because he said he won't. So you and I entrust ourselves to the God who says, I will never fail you. 
Now, things might not work out the way that we hope they will. We might not be immune from suffering and difficulty, even at the hands of those who call themselves God's own children. But will God ever fail us? No. Let me ask you another question. Once God entrusts himself and the gospel witness to us as believers, will we ever fail him? At least potentially. Absolutely. So my argument is simply that it's the last issue that's more important than the first. The way I see it is like this. Whether I live or I die, I can't lose. So I no longer have any great need to be overly concerned with what happens to me personally. Amen? And you might say, that's fine for you, Rodney. We've got a slightly different take on our lives at the moment. But that's really, that's really the bottom line. And that's why Eric and Anne and, and, and others of us know of people who live like that day by day. We're not worried about doing up our houses or which car we're going to invest in next year or the pension plan because do you know what? We live in such hostile environments that God may well require our lives to be taken as a witness for him before we reach old age. But I also see it like this on the more important and more sober truth that if I don't present the truth of the gospel and correct falsehoods particularly in relation to the gospel message or biblical doctrine or church discipline, then everybody loses in this life, but far more importantly, in eternity. You see, you and I live where, even within so-called evangelicalism, the people are starting to lose confidence in the true fundamental word of God that is the gospel. And so we water it down. And so we compromise it. And no one is prepared to stand up, or very few people are prepared to put their lives, their reputations, the friendships of other important people on the line and say, brother, sister, you're wrong. Because this is what the Word says. And the Holy Spirit confirms that to us. Now that is a solemn responsibility. Knowing that there is not really an alternative, having made that approach to to Festus, he then appeals to Caesar. Now we can speculate whether uh, Paul simply just feared that the new governor's inexperience might be exploited by the high priest to his own disadvantage. But whatever the reason, Paul availed himself of this privilege as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar. Uh, You can be able to Google appeal to Caesar and and find out uh, what exactly that means. But in a nutshell, it's simply is the appeal for the transfer of his case from the provincial court into the supreme tribunal in Rome. Now, there is, of course, also a higher authority than Caesar to appeal to. And Paul has no doubt already appealed to the one who is the Lord of the universe. Because God himself has assured Paul of his right of passage to Rome. Flip back again to Acts 23 and verse 11. Remember the story? Colin preached on this a couple of weeks ago. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul in prison and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
Take heart, take courage, brother or sister, because if God has said he's going to do something for you, he's going to do something for you. And if God has said you're going to do something for him, stay faithful, stay true, keep trusting. You're going to do it for him. And like Job of old, you always have, as the heart of the worshipper, this thought, and you know, and even if he doesn't, I will still praise him. You and I can also be assured that the same God who watched over Paul and directed the course of his life equally is concerned for each of us and is able to direct our paths. Now, having invoked this right as a Roman citizen by appealing to Caesar, Festus assures him that to Rome he will go. And so Paul uh, makes that petition to Caesar. But secondly, he also puzzles Festus in verses 13 through 21. Verse 13, we're told that a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now, this is hobnobbing at the highest level. I don't know if you ever get an opportunity to hobnob at a high level or not. Uh, I represented Charlotte Chapel uh, in the, the Edinburgh City Chambers just last week. I went to a 25th anniversary celebration. A uh, civic reception hosted um, on behalf of Bethany Christian Trust. That's about as high hobnobbing I've ever done. But this is hobnobbing at the very highest level. The newest Roman official plays host to the last, as it turns out, members of the Herodian dynasty. King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. And by the way, speculation is rife about the exact nature of this relationship. It's uh, unquestionably in, um, that he's uh, having sexual relationships with his sister. So Festus discusses the facts of the case. Actually, just before we come to that, that's a little thing, that's, that, that can actually catch your throat a little bit sometimes. That as Christians, we're brought and questioned and grilled before those whose lives are just so far off the mark, um, we don't feel like talking to them. Because we actually do know, albeit humbly, that we're better than they. But there are times even to give that testimony, as we'll see. King Agrippa was part Jewish and presumably being familiar with the customs of the day, uh, he would be a good sounding board for Festus to discuss the case with. Now at this time in Jewish history, the king, this guy here, he actually appointed the high priest back in Jerusalem. So again, we can trace that hidden hand of God in Paul's appeal to Caesar. You see, as I read it, had Festus not already been bound to send Paul to Rome, there's a strong likelihood that Agrippa would have gone along with the request for a Jerusalem-based trial. So I see God's provision for Paul in him making that appeal to Caesar. Verse 15 is very telling. Look there in chapter 25, verse 15. When I went to Jerusalem, Festus says, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against Paul and asked that he be condemned. The Jews apparently made no bones about the fact that they wanted Paul dead. The word used here in the New Testament, it only ever happens once, it's the only time it's used, and it literally means a sentence of condemnation. As a favor to us, Festus, condemn the man. And Festus says, well, on what grounds? What are the charges? Has he faced his accusers? Well, he can't. They've gone back to Asia. They want him dead. They want him out of the way. But just not interested at all at getting at the truth. But the dilemma for Festus is that while they've been given the opportunity to present the case, they don't have any charges meriting the desired sentence. 
So then Festus goes on with the king to describe the finer points of these charges as he understands them. It, it hinges around two issues. First of all, the Jewish religion. Now, these are not matters for civil law. They're basically religious matters that, in Festus' own mind, amount to no charge. And do you notice as well that the issue of stirring up insurrection at the temple seems to have disappeared because that is nothing more than a surface issue to hide the more basic difference between Paul and these Jewish leaders. Do you know what the basic difference is? Do you know what the real problem is here? Jesus. Jesus is the problem. Paul didn't believe in Jesus, there would be no case. Paul didn't love Jesus, there would be no case. If Paul didn't follow Jesus, there would be no case. If Paul didn't preach that Jesus had been raised from the dead, there would be no case. Jesus is the problem, and specifically, Jesus' resurrection. By his own admission, Festus was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. Verse 20. Now, just trying to get your head around the resurrection of Jesus is a pretty hard task. Uh, whether you attempt to understand it on your own or whether you discuss it with other people. And there's a reason for that. You see, the truth, the doctrine of the resurrection um, that's found in Jesus is so hard to understand simply because spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2 and 14 that the man without the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the man or woman, irrespective of his learning, irrespective of his authority in the land, irrespective of his position in leadership, the man or the woman without the Holy Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and they cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And you see, as you and I try to influence the world and the society in which we live, we know what God's Word says, we know what the conviction of the Spirit says to us, And yet we take these things into our workplaces. We take them into the places where laws are made. And the cleverest minds in the country cannot comprehend the fundamental truths of the Word of God because they're spiritually discerned. And the Bible says the man without the Holy Spirit can't get the stuff. You see, the bottom line is that you will never be able to solve a theological question by human deduction or as Festus was attempting, by a political solution. I know that some of you here are greatly involved in these things, so I say this as gently and as humbly as I can, but I believe based on the authority of God's Word. Education, social reforms, legislation, or other human solutions alone cannot solve the basic human need. Because man's basic need is to have his relationship with his creator that was broken in the Garden of Eden in the original sin. He needs to have that relationship restored through the power and the provision of Calvary's cross. That's the gospel. That's the word. Jesus is the answer for every one of man's searching questions and problems. Don't you get this yet? How long have you listened to this stuff? Don't you get it? Now, I'm a simple kind of a guy, so let me put it to you simply. The resurrection is just supernatural cause and effect. That's how I see it. 
The resurrection is just supernatural cause and effect. You see, Jesus is God in human form. And as the sinless one, he was killed for our sins. But death couldn't keep its hold on him, for the death he died was not on his own behalf, but on behalf of us. And even though the sin, our sin was heaped on him, it wasn't his sin. So death can't hold him. It's supernatural cause and effect. And so the Spirit raises him back from the dead. And Paul says, I know that's true. The apostles in Jerusalem know that's true. The simplest, humblest, least educated Christian believer in the 21st century, we know that's true. But the Jews who accused Paul didn't get it. The Roman governor and the Jewish king didn't get it. Yet for everyone who does get it, they have the right to be called children of the living God. And Paul was a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the reaction that he was experiencing, while very unpleasant and, I imagine, very scary, is not one that should surprise us. In Matthew 24 and verse 9, Jesus says, You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Not just by nations that Eric and Anne minister into, but we will be hated by the Scottish nation. We will be hated by the collective nations of the United Kingdom, those who don't know Jesus, if we're true to the gospel. And John, picking up the words of Jesus in John 15 and verse 18, says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it first hated me first. We identify with Jesus in this. And as we come to the end of this passage, in verse 22, I just see an opportunity still for the witness to widen. This guy, Agrippa, well, he's the great-grandson of the Herod who ordered the death of Jesus as a baby. He similarly had several members of his own family dispatched, including a wife, his father-in-law, a brother-in-law, and several of his sons. He's the son of the Herod, who had James executed by the sword. He's the great-uncle. His great-uncle Antipas took an active role in the execution of John the Baptist and Jesus. And if I've got my facts wrong on Herodian lineage, somebody will correct me. But isn't God's grace amazing? Because... This guy's pedigree is just vile. It's evil. He's living in an incestuous relationship with his sister. And he's being consulted on matters of grace. And he says, I want to hear this man Paul. Do you know, it's a good job you and I aren't God because we would say, no, I'm not wasting the good news with a vile, evil person like that. But that's how amazing God's grace is. And you know what I read into this? That according to the Bible, there is no person or group of persons to whom the gospel message is off limits. And I've, I've spoken to some of you about this because your work situation in our society with its uh, political correctness and its tolerance uh, does not um, give you a very good atmosphere in which to be faithful Christians. But you know, what I'm about to say is completely unpolitically correct and will sound a little bit intolerant, but I make no apologies for it because I'm not saying it in a harsh or vile way. I'm saying it because it's God's word. That the gospel message is for Jew and for Gentile. It's for Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, black, white, male, female, 
old, young, rich, poor, straight, gay, tall, short, pauper, prince. Indeed, I believe that everyone in the world has a divine right to hear the good news at least once in their lifetime and be presented with a clear challenge to turn from their sins and trust the living God. And even if they practice their sins very religiously in some other faith other than the one that the Bible says gets us to God, they still need to be given the opportunity to turn from it. And on account of Jesus, we will meet people this week. And it will give them an opportunity to hear, whoever they are, I doubt if some of them will be governors or kings, but you just never know. Maybe you're a taxi driver and you pick up somebody like that from the airport. But you will be given, they will be given an opportunity simply because you're there as one of the witnesses of Jesus to hear the gospel message or at least to hear something of it. Some will listen, some will not. Some will respond positively and some will not. The outcome is not our responsibility. The call to witness is. And in 2 Corinthians 2, and with this verse I finish, verses 15 through 16, Paul says, As you go as witnesses into the world, we are to God the aroma of Christ. Whoa! Guys! This week, we can walk out of this building and as faithful witness to Jesus, God goes, oh, they smell like Jesus. That's what it's saying, isn't it? We are to God as we witness faithfully for him the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we have the smell of death. That's not pleasant. But to the other with the fragrance of life. And then Paul says, and who is equal to such a task? Who indeed? Let's pray.